Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's episode is brought to you by TRX Dinosaurs. They have innovative puppets, poseable sculptures, and animatronics. And you can find out more at trxdinosaurs.com. This week, we have an interview with Dr. Andrew Farkey and Gabriel Phillips Santos, both from the ALF Museum slash Web Schools. We have Dinosaur of the Day, Gojirosaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. Surprise! <laughs> yep. It's so different every time. It really is. <laughs> One other very different thing is we're going to thank our Stegosaurus patrons. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we'd like to thank Chris Nicholas, Blaze Campbell, Trent Carbajal, Paralorlophus, Stefan, and Nutmeg. <laughs> and Nutmeg just joined, so thank you. Yeah, thanks to all of our patrons at the Stegosaurus level and at all of the levels. And if you want to join this growing group of amazing people, check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping right into the news, first we have a new article from the International Journal of Speleology, Whoa. which is like spelunking. Really? Meaning caves. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> so it's a journal about caves. And it was written by Jean-David Moreau and others. And what they did was they discovered some new dinosaur tracks in southern France that were in a cave, not surprisingly. Originally, they weren't in a cave. They were in a marsh. And then somehow through geological magic, they ended up inside a cave <laughs> after getting shoved down and back up and all around. And it's a natural cave, which is kind of unusual because generally when we find footprints from dinosaurs and they're in a cave, it's from mining or tunneling. Like they recently found some fossils while tunneling the new subway for Los Angeles. And they often find them, for instance, in like opal mines and... Australia or other sorts of mines around the U.S. and Africa and things like that. But this is just a natural cave. And most of the prints are actually on the ceiling, <laughs> which is pretty weird. I mean, if it isn't weird enough to have dinosaur footprints in a cave. They found a total of 26 tracks and mostly they're tridactyl prints. And a lot of them are Eubrontes, which is that state fossil of, I think, Massachusetts and Connecticut, if I'm not mistaken. It's the three-toed print that's just ubiquitous all over the place. And it's likely a Dilophosaurus or something similar to a Dilophosaurus. Gives you kind of an idea about the size, 18 feet long. I'm talking the real Dilophosaurus, not the Jurassic World and Jurassic Park Dilophosaurus with the frill that spits <laughs> venom. Actually, I don't know. I don't think that was in Jurassic World, was it? No, Jurassic Park. Just Jurassic Park. Yeah, so this guy was actually much longer, more like Allosaurus type size, or a little smaller. They have some really awesome pictures in the article of them holding a flashlight in the cave next to the print, and it really makes the print stand out when you hold a flashlight at an angle, you can get a good view of it. <laughs> but it also reminded me of a bunch of horror movies, and then I tried to look up which horror movie had the monsters in it where the people got stuck in it, and there were so many results that I couldn't <laughs> tell which one was the one that I had seen. There's literally a movie about people getting trapped in a cave with monsters almost every year. 
And a lot of them are called like the cave or like <laughs> the depths or the stuck in a cave or like cave nightmare or whatever. Wow. Popular topic. It is. The one of them was like lampreys attacking people. And then there was like a huge lamprey. Oh, jeez. And then sometimes it's, you know, more anthropomorphic things and everything else in between. So anywho, I if I saw this footprint in a cave, I'd probably freak out. Yeah. Although on the ceiling, I might freak out less because that makes it seem like it's not something that was walking there recently. <laughs> oh, true. Also, you might not be looking up. True, for footprints. <laughs> <laughs> we got a couple more footprint pieces of news. They're all very different, though. The next one comes out of Cretaceous Research, and it was written by Lita Xing and others. And so they're in China, about halfway in between Beijing and Shanghai, pretty much exactly if you drew a line between the two and went right in the middle. They found about 40 tracks. They include sauropods, large theropods, and ornithopods. And they're in at least 10 different stratigraphic levels. And stratigraphic levels are like the layer cake of geology, but in this case, it's been stuck up out of the ground and then like turned 90 degrees. So it's like if you took a piece of cake, like it was in a cake, and then you cut it and then you lay it down on its side. <laughs> That's kind of how the stratigraphy is. It's like lined up 90 degrees to the ground. And then it's also sticking up really high too. It's basically like a cliff face. So yeah, they had to use a drone to take pictures of it because they couldn't climb on it or see them all from the ground. But unfortunately, they didn't do full photogrammetry of the pictures. They just used regular photographs on a drone to kind of get a general picture of what they look like and try to kind of do some analysis about what type of footprints they are. Like you can tell if it's a sauropod because it's a big circle. If it's a theropod, you're looking for the three toes, etc. They think that it was on an ancient floodplain that occasionally dried out. And that's really what the fossils look like. It has that characteristic, like, cracked earth look to it. Hmm. But I guess it fossilized like that. It's really cool looking. And then you can really clearly see these footprints in it, which have darker sediment. At first, I was looking at the picture for the footprints, and I was looking for something really subtle because a lot of times the footprints are barely there and they're a real slight relief kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But in this one, it was super obvious because it's a dark brown footprint with this light cracked surface around it. So it's really easy to pick them out. Looks really neat. And it's always cool to see multiple different types of dinosaur there too, like sauropods and theropods and ornithopods. Hmm. And on our third continent of the episode, <laughs> we're in the U.S. for the last set of dinosaur tracks. It was published in PLOS One by Brian Platt and others. And in this case, they freshly digitized some tracks. It's not a new set of tracks, although it is new to me. I had never heard of these. And in this case, it was in a commercial quarry. More common, like I said, than finding things in a cave <laughs> that's <laughs> naturally occurring but since it's a quarry it's more of an open pit kind of thing so they're open to all the elements and they discovered them in 1983 or at least some of them and it was hundreds of sauropod tracks in the first paper that was published then they're all in southwest arkansas in an area called the dequeen limestone formation in howard county which is pretty close to Mississippi and Louisiana over there. And then almost 30 years later in 2011, a different group discovered about 30 theropod tracks 
right nearby, basically in the same area. It's technically separated a little bit, but it's to anybody looking at it now, it's just the same place effectively. They believe that the theropod that left the tracks is Acrocanthosaurus, and there are two sets of tracks that are over 30 meters or 100 feet long, although they're walking in exactly opposite directions. <laughs> so they're parallel, but one set's going, you know, like northwest, the other one's going southeast. So that's kind of interesting. And they also cross kind of obliquely with the sauropod tracks, so possibly not laid down at the same time. Just kind of a coincidence. Mm-hmm. This new article in 2018 looked to kind of map the entire area. And I think when they did that, they also found some new additional theropod prints in with the sauropods. I'm not positive because it's a little bit vague about which site was which. And I didn't closely read all dozens of pages of all these articles. <laughs> <laughs> Just enough to get all the, the most interesting information. So one of my favorite things is they have this big picture of the whole site. And in the caption, they wrote, pickup truck for scale. (laughs) And the pickup is this tiny little thing in the corner, basically. So it's really a massive site, as you'd expect from hundreds of sauropod tracks and, you know, tens of theropod tracks in the mix, too. But the researchers also managed to map the entire area with LIDAR. And to do that, they used a boom lift and a... ZNF Imager 5006i laser scanner, which I had to read about because that sounds exciting. (laughs) Basically, this laser scanner is a LiDAR scanner, and it can scan between 0.4 meters and 79 meters away, or 15 inches to 3,000 inches. (laughs) It's kind of a weird distance to use inches for. Yeah, (laughs) it's a very wide range. Yeah, more like 200-something feet But anyway, it can also scan 508,000 points per second. If you're familiar with LiDAR, it measures individual points over and over again to kind of get a a map of the area, but just with individual points, sort of like a really pixelated picture. And it has sub-millimeter precision. So when it does that mapping, it's very precise, which is obviously useful if you're worried about things like depths of tracks in a trackway. Mm Mm-hmm. Just as an aside, the successor to the scanner can do over a million points a second. It's pretty impressive. That is. You can pick up a used one of these only half a million points a second for about $25,000. I have no use for it, but I had to see how expensive they were because it's not so cool. (laughs) And then the researchers combined all of this LIDAR data with pictures that they took from the same boom lift And they created a map of the entire area. And it reminds me a lot of the trackway in Picket Wire that we talked about with Bruce Schumacher, which is in Colorado. And just like how many sauropods they are and how it's a little bit broken up, but there's so much going on. And you look at this picture and you're like, holy cow, how many dinosaurs and how many theropods were there at that time? It's crazy. Long story short, though. This is something really exciting to do if you're ever in southwest Arkansas, would be to go to this spot. I couldn't find if the quarry is still active or not. They did mention that they were a little bit worried about people poaching, so that was one of the reasons that they wanted to do the LiDAR scan, and they also did a lot of impressions using actual plaster and silicone and stuff like that. So I'm guessing it's easy enough to get to. I'm not sure if you have to trespass to do it or not, though, because Hmm. obviously if you're stealing things, that's probably not your number one concern. Mm -hmm. 
Hopefully it's open to the public, though. That'd be really cool to see. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool project. Mm -hmm. And next, we got an email from Steve with a couple interesting comments that we wanted to talk about. His first one, he said, quote, Deinonychus have both a large toe claw as well as feathered arms. While feathered arms are not capable of obtaining any level of flight, they would have been useful in maintaining balance as it climbed up onto its prey and used its weight to tear through its next meal. Making those rear claws useful as a weapon would surely put it off balance during a fight, and the wind resistance of the feathered arms would work well to help counter the efforts to be thrown off in the heat of battle. It's a pretty interesting idea. And we've talked before about how wings are definitely useful for more than just flight, especially in the early stages of dinosaur evolution. Mm -hmm. We talk about both the ground up, which is wing-assisted incline running or wear, basically allowing animals to run up steeper slopes because they can use their wings <laughs> to sort of push themselves up a little bit, as well as the trees down where you could glide a little bit and potentially jump a little bit farther in between branches. They're also obviously useful for display if you're attracting mates like a peacock or an intimidation like owls hmm. and some other animals do. They kind of puff out their wings and start making just terrifying noises. Swans also do that. Yep. And a lot of birds. Speaking of swans, they can be used as weapons for like bludgeoning <laughs> like swans do. <laughs> and I guess it makes sense that you would add to the list balance because it does make a lot of sense that if you're standing on one foot being able to use wings, kind of like how people flail their arms a little bit to adjust your center of gravity. If you could actually push against something, kind of like pressing up against a wall to keep your balance, if you had a wing and you could just press up against the air, that would definitely help. So I think that's a reasonable hypothesis. Yeah. It's obviously really hard to test because it's hard to create a velociraptor and watch it attack something and see how it uses its wings. <laughs> True. You might be able to see something similar. I don't know, though. Every animal I can think of that has wings that eats large animals, they tend to grab it and fly off with it. What about something like a, a cassowary or an ostrich that could kick? Yeah, there's a little bit of that, I suppose. And if they puff out their wings. Yeah, speaking of using wings for intimidation, ostriches definitely do that a lot. Mm -hmm. They like puff them out and run around and start making terrible noises. Yeah, I suppose you could probably see it with an ostrich. It's a good point. Using a land-based animal would make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking with eagles and things that I've seen attack fairly large prey, they still always try to fly off with it, or they just kill it instantaneously, like digging the claws in and then eat it, which maybe a velociraptor could do something like that too, kind of surprise it, kill it right away with its claws. I don't know. Me either. Yeah. It also kind of supposes that Deinonychus and Velociraptor and those types would attack something so large, which is pretty speculative. We tend to think of Deinonychosaurs as attacking smaller animals. Like, they're more likely to attack something smaller than it, than mm -hmm. something big, because they're not crazy like cats. <laughs> <laughs> Unless the big thing is really injured already. Yeah, I suppose. Opportunistic. Or if, yeah, or if they're really desperate, mm -hmm. sometimes animals will do stuff too. Steve also mentioned, and I'm paraphrasing, that ankylosaurs might end up preserved upside down in water so often because they might be using water as a sort of barrier to prevent animals from running around them. 
So like <laughs> I'm imagining Bowser in that N64 game <laughs> oh, yeah. where you had to go grab its tail. <laughs> and so you're like trying to spin around it and you can't turn fast enough. And like an ankylosaur doing the same thing. Although I guess in reverse because it's trying to keep you by its tail. Oh, Bowser does kind of look like an ankylosaur. A little bit. It's got the spiky shell and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> Um, I tried to think of a modern comparison to an ankylosaur because that's usually the first place to start with all this sort of animal behavior. And there isn't any good modern comparison to ankylosaurs. There just isn't anything alive today that has the combination of armor and camouflage and a weapon. We have things that are armored, but they're so big that they don't have any predators like um, tortoises and things where they're armored and they just live forever because nothing ever really attacks them. And then you have animals that are covered in weapons, <laughs> basically like a porcupine. And that's really the closest thing I can think of to an ankylosaur in likely behavior. So porcupines do have several predators. I had to look this up. Actually, quite a few predators. The most common predator is an animal called a fisher, just like a fisherman spelled the same way, which is a weasel-like carnivore. To me, it's pretty indistinguishable from a weasel or a ferret, but I'm sure an expert knows a lot of differences and would be insulted by this. Also, <laughs> wolverines, coyotes, bears, cougars, eagles, and owls all on occasion eat porcupines. It's a pretty long list of animals. Oh, didn't realize. Yeah. Most of these are small and quick animals with the exception of bears, but bears are big and dumb and just kind of, they go after like bees and stuff too and just don't seem to care. So maybe there's sort of an exception. <laughs> but all the other animals are pretty small and quick and they basically all kill porcupines by attacking the face because that's the one part of the porcupine that isn't covered in quills essentially. So it might work to kill an ankylosaur by attacking its face, but ankylosaurs, unlike porcupines, do have a lot of defense on their face. They famously even have armored eyelids <laughs> as well as the bony plates all over their head and neck. So that might not be as good of an approach with ankylosaurs as it is with porcupines. On top of that, the same combination of speed and sharp teeth or whatever you need to attack usually leads to a small size with porcupines. So most of those animals are kind of similar in size, but with an ankylosaur, since it's so armored, I don't think an animal of similar size could actually take it down. You'd need something really big to be able to sort of crush through its armor, more like a T-Rex or something with just a, a lot of biting force. And as far as quick animals, the only one I could come up with was an Asdarkid, which are those big flying pterosaurs that have really powerful beaks. Hmm. I was thinking maybe that could kind of surprise it and land on its back or something and get at its neck or its face or I don't know. But then again, they might have just been more like tortoises. And unless it got flipped over, it was just invulnerable. It's kind of hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> so it might be reasonable to try to stay away from terrestrial predators by keeping your face closer to some sort of obstacle and then your tail would be, you know, you wouldn't have to rotate as far and it'd be harder for them to sneak around you. Hmm. But that wouldn't only work with water, it would also work with steep hills because it's hard to climb uphill quickly. It would probably also work with large rocks and other obstacles. It's kind of the same barriers humans would use if you think about where old forts and castles have been built yeah exactly on top of big hills 
Yeah. Lots of rocks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And a moat. <laughs> yeah. Steve is arguing for the moat principle. <laughs> <laughs> so it might be possible. It's really hard to say. Again, super speculative, hard to test. Unfortunately, there were a few really large animals that were armored and had tail weapons until recently, like glyptodonts. And there are also these tortoise-looking things. But those tortoise-looking guys went extinct about 3,000 years ago when people wiped them out. So we don't have any good modern analogs to compare to. Yeah, so thanks, Steve, for the questions. We always like getting questions from our listeners. And if you are a listener with a question, then feel free to send it our way at plesiosaur at inodino.com. Or on Facebook or Twitter or... Patreon. Instagram, wherever. Anywhere we are. Yep. (laughs) Next, the George S. Eccles Dinosaur Park in Ogden, Utah has reopened, and I hope I pronounced all of that correctly. But anyway, it's been closed for a couple weeks for renovations and the installation of a new permanent exhibit. So Josh Cotton actually is a paleo artist with Dinosaur Park, so that's really cool. You might remember him from one of our... Much earlier episodes, we had him on the show and talking about his work. So the museum got new material from a traveling exhibit created by Western Paleontological Laboratories that it was retiring. And it includes eight new types of dinosaurs and a lot of Jurassic era fossils. And there is, quote, more armor and more teeth, (laughs) quote, according to the education director, Jeff Bond. And there's also skeletons of Ceratosaurus and... Tanicolagrius fighting, and the museum's been steadily growing. Now they're focusing on teaching people how paleontology works, and they also have a working fossil lab, which they use to assist the University of Utah. They called it kind of a satellite lab, which is pretty cool. Next, the paleontologist Denver Fowler from the Dickinson Museum Center is working on a new dinosaur exhibit called Claws. And recently he held a public sneak preview of these custom-made models that were made by the Serbian paleoartist Boban Filpovic, who made three fossil species with feathers of dinosaurs that lived in North Dakota in the Cretaceous. And the dinosaurs are based on research by Denver Fowler and Liz Friedman Fowler. And the exhibit is about how dinosaurs use their claws and the different types of claws that they had. So one model is of a velociraptor, and that'll be shown killing a small mammal called Didelphodon, and the second dinosaur doesn't yet have a name. There's not enough fossils found. Common story. (laughs) (laughs) Fowler is working on the exhibit this winter, and more details will be announced this spring. It sounds pretty cool. Yeah. And there's an example of Velociraptor killing something tiny, (laughs) like a little mammal, rather than trying to attack, say, uh, Triceratops or something. Yeah, good point. Speaking of that small mammal... Didelphodon. So Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta has a new exhibit called Cretaceous Lands, and they have three fossil casts. Two are of dinosaurs, Nanotyrannus and Triceratops, and one is of Didelphodon, which is a small mammal. It's also a marsupial. In other news, McDonald's got in a little bit of trouble recently. In British Columbia, Canada, McDonald's released a radio ad that suggested that it was better to spend $5 on a McDonald's meal than to spend $5 on a museum tour. Oops. (laughs) And in the commercial, there was a male narrator who said, you could get a museum tour for $5. And then a woman cuts in and says, there were dinosaurs, and then there weren't. Okay, then. Exit through the gift shop. 
So, I think that's a pretty good joke. It really is. Well, and then the man tells listeners that they could spend $5 on a value meal. So there were a lot of people who were upset. I guess they didn't think it was a good joke. Yeah. I mean, I, I can understand if you're constantly trying to encourage people to go to a museum and then an ad like this comes out and is basically discouraging people to go through a museum. Mm-hmm. But to me, I don't think anyone's actually making this decision. Like, should I go to McDonald's and spend $5 on food or should I go to a museum? It's not, those aren't <laughs> substitutable quantities. You know what I mean? Well, nobody agreed with you, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I'm sure people maybe did. Fortunately. Well, what happened is there's a lot of people who were affiliated with museums who reached out to complain. And then one day later after the ad first aired, McDonald's pulled the ad. So they listened and they said that the ad was meant to be humorous and not offensive to museums. And there's one spokesperson who said, quote, we apologize for any offense. We appreciate that museums are trusted, respected and informative places about Canadian culture. And we are removing this ad from the airwaves immediately. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that is a pretty humorous and accurate way to describe dinosaurs. Like they were around and then they weren't. <laughs> I can see, though, that if that's your work. Yeah. It does come across as offensive. If somebody summarized our podcast like that, I'd find it funny, though. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're saying, but I guess we're on opposite ends here. <laughs> I guess so. In Ireland, Jim Jim and Nobby from the Strawberry Alarm Clock Breakfast Show pranked one of their coworkers with Pete, who's this realistic dinosaur from the Dinosaurs Around the World show, which is currently in the Ambassador Theater near them. And Pete is a theropod, looks like probably Velociraptor or Velociraptor-ish, and Pete's a puppet. So somebody's in the suit, but it's large. It's bigger than most people. And they had Pete chase... Uh, their female co-worker around in an empty parking garage. And, of course, she's screaming, and then everybody's laughing at the end. <laughs> it reminds me of a really similar prank by a couple Australian radio show hosts. I think that happened around a year ago when we talked about it. Yeah, they also did that with Chris Pratt at one point in the hallway yeah. around Jurassic World. I guess it doesn't get old. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> people like to scare people. With dinosaurs. Yeah. Next, in the UK, a dinosaur toy was found on the M1 motorway between the junctions for Northampton and Coventry, and it was found when traffic officers were helping a driver change a tire, and they happened to notice this little dinosaur toy on the road. And Highways England officers tweeted about the toy because they're hoping to find the owners, and they said, quote, traffic officers are looking after it for hmm. you, end quote. And there's no word yet on whose dinosaur it is. I don't know if the owner did see it. I hope they did, because that's a pretty sweet story. Yeah. Yeah, kids love throwing stuff out windows. <laughs> I used to throw stuff out the window all the time when I was a kid. Oh. We lost so many, like, individual shoes. Like, Jeez. we would get to where we were going, and we'd only have one shoe, and we'd be like, what happened to the other shoe? Like, oops. That makes no sense. Why did you do that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's just fun to put stuff out the window. Hmm. Your toys, too? I don't know if I threw a toy out the window. Maybe not. Yeah, kids can't be trusted with nice things. <laughs> They'll destroy them or throw them away. Oh, jeez. Or at least I would. <laughs> and last in the news, Rich Douglas, who's a video game composer, has released a cinematic tribute to the Nintendo 64 game Turok Dinosaur Hunter. 
and it was originally composed by Darren Mitchell. So this is a soundtrack re-recording with seven tracks, and the tracks have been updated to sound more like what you would hear in an action film. Interesting. I do not remember the music being a highlight of Turok. Apparently it was. Maybe, yeah. Although I think N64 still used pretty simple sound, so maybe it you know, didn't have quite the fidelity (laughs) that I would expect. Before we get into our interview, we'd like to pause to thank our sponsor, TRX Dinosaurs. And as a reminder, they have all sorts of things to serve your dinosaur-loving needs, be that a puppet of any dinosaur you could possibly imagine, or a posable sculpture. A scientifically accurate one. Yes, for your museum or for your office or house, and they can also make animatronics if you're interested in that kind of thing, say an interactive sort of display where they might be marching around or doing other fun dinosaur stuff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they do really good work with feathers. Yes. So if you're interested in getting any type of dinosaur puppet or sculpture or animatronic, head over to trxdinosaurs.com and enter what you're looking for, and they will custom make you a dinosaur of your own. You can also follow them on Instagram at trxdinosaurs to see works in progress. And now we're going to move on to our interview with Dr. Andrew Farkey and Gabriel Philip Santos. Today, we get to chat with Dr. Andrew Farkey and Gabriel Phillips Santos from the Raymond M. Alf Museum of Paleontology. And Andy is a paleontologist and Augustan family curator and the director of research and collections. Andy's on the science faculty for the Web Schools, which the Alf Museum is on the Web Schools campus, and it's the only nationally accredited museum in the U.S. on a high school campus. And he's also a PLOS paleo community editor. His research focuses on Cretaceous ecosystems in North America, especially Ceratopsians. And Gabe is the collections manager at the museum, where he catalogs, organizes, and cares for the museum's growing collection of fossils. And he works on a number of insanely cool projects, which we'll be talking about. But (laughs) to give you a hint, it involves social media, cosplay videos, and much more. So Gabe's research focuses on marine mammals. So how did you both get involved with the ALF Museum? Well, I uh, started at the ALF Museum way back in 2008, and I hadn't really heard of the institution before I applied for the job. You know, I was finishing up grad school, uh, looking for positions, and saw an advertisement for a curator opening at a museum that was on a high school campus. And I thought, (laughs) well, that sounds kind of interesting. And as I learned more and more about it, I thought, oh, wow, that's totally cool. And, you know, almost 10 years later, uh, here I am. Wow. That's exactly what we thought when we found out that there was a museum on a high school campus. (laughs) Well, it's funny for me. I'm from Southern California. I was born and raised not that far from here. But I actually had never heard of the Alpha Museum either until I was in my, I guess, just starting my master's program at Cal State Fullerton when I had decided to become a paleontologist. Mm -hmm. And that's when I first met Andy, I think, when um, one of the previous employees here, Peter Klaus um, started at the grad program too, and that's when I found out the museum. But when I was going through my master's program, I was looking for a new job from my previous museum, and it just so happened the collections manager position opened up here. And you know, everyone's all like, "Yeah, you should totally go for it." And I was like, "I don't know, I don't have much experience," but uh, everyone's like, "You should totally do it." Even Andy was like, "Are you gonna do it?" And I was like, "Yeah." So I submitted my application, and then I got the job. Nice. 
So you had worked with Andy before? Not worked, but we've met each other before. Yeah, it's a pretty, I mean, it's a small world in paleontology and it's, you know, it's even smaller world in Southern California paleontology. (laughs) So it's really hard to escape. And, you know, Gabe, I'd seen him at conferences and meetings and stuff and, you know, had hung out a little bit. So yeah, it was, uh, it's been exciting now to have him as a colleague here at the museum. I'm forever grateful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I guess paleontology is one of those things where oddly there's not that many people in California doing it. You go to somewhere like Montana and it's jam packed. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, yeah, I mean, we are kind of jam packed here. It's just, you know, not everyone does dinosaurs. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> so, We're a little biased. Sorry. Yeah. Like everyone hears about, you know, I would, say, I would say one of the cool things about what's happening right now in Southern California is it's probably one of the best places in the U.S. for sure to be a paleontologist. There's, I mean, you know, we're close to some really cool historic field localities. You know, we have everything from the Miocene aged Barstow formation to the La Brea tar pits. And then we have all these uh, universities and museums that are, you know, have, you know, great traditions of paleontology and have hired on a bunch of really exciting people. You know, just where I'm at in Claremont, I think there's something like a half dozen vertebrate paleontologists that live within a two mile radius of my house. Wow. Uh, It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And, you know, I'm from Orange County and, you know, I'm one of the first generations to go through the Cal State Fullerton vertebrate paleontology program. And it's just really cool getting to meet all these new and up and coming paleontologists in the area. And, um, you know, from UCLA, USC, there's just a lot of us that you really wouldn't expect. And I think it's also because here in Southern California, we have the rare occurrence of a lot of mitigation paleontology. And because LA and Orange County is just always growing. There's just new fossils coming out from everywhere, mm-hmm. whether it's a brand new subway station or something or a freeway. <laughs> oh, good point. Out of the ground all the time. Yeah. Construction is one of those things where it's like it might destroy fossils, but otherwise you might not know they were there. So <laughs> you get like half of a fossil a lot of the times, it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us some of the ways that you work with students? Because it's it's just really awesome that this museum is with a high school. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that's, I guess probably Gabe and I can both speak to that. I'll maybe start just with kind of the the more academic side of things. Just a little bit about the school. Uh, it's called the Web Schools. Um, it is a high school, 9 through 12 boarding school that has around 400 students. Uh, so, you know, kind of before I came here, the closest analogy in my mind was Hogwarts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's got some similarities, a lot of differences, but some similarities. No robes. Uh, yeah, yeah, no robes, uh, but that's okay. Uh, so all the students uh, as ninth graders have an evolutionary biology class, and part of that evolutionary biology class is a one-month section just on paleontology and what it tells us about evidence for evolution, you know, what we see in the fossil record, you know, the history, the basic history of the earth and that. So all the students start with that. Some students then, the, as uh, 10th or 11th graders, uh, they'll take a more advanced paleontology class, a little more in-depth, learn, you know, more about the fossil record learn how to read the scientific literature, Um, and then students that want to continue on can do original research uh, with us. And that was one of the things that really drew me to the museum in the first place, is the ability to do original research projects, you know, sometimes describing new species or describing really cool fossils that have never been seen before. And that's working, you know, with me and then in collaboration with some of the the older students at the school. Uh, So we get to do that, all this whole, you know, section of classes. Um, But also we do summer field trips with them. You know, we go out into the field and actually collect fossils. 
and you know all these other things. Then of course there's a big volunteer program we have, uh, which Gabe can talk to. Yeah, I handle more of the informal side of things. So all students have the opportunity to work in the museum and the after-school museum science program. Mm -hmm. All basically after school, after the class is done, they come to the museum and we get to teach them what it's like to work in a museum, whether that's curating, um, preparing, labeling specimens, helping with exhibits. Sometimes they even get to help um, with our really cool events at the museum. Um, and students during the summer also get an opportunity to volunteer here. So it's a lot of really cool, unique opportunities to work in a museum that, you know, a lot of people don't have. And uh, it's just something really fun to get to see kids like, get excited about putting things into a database or painting labels <laughs> on specimens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember you mentioned when we visited that if they wanted to, they could basically experience every aspect of working or running a museum in some capacity. It's true. You know, there's some students who you know, they're not more into the academic side of things. They just want to do the after school. But there are those really great students who come through and they do the, the research program with Andy and then they come in after school and stay longer to do the museum science side of things. So there's a lot of passion here with a lot of the students. And I know for not very many, but there are the few students who come here specifically for the paleontology opportunities. <laughs> yeah, nice. And I remember you mentioned that a lot of them don't end up doing paleontology as adults, obviously, because there aren't like 500 new paleontologists cranking out every year from just one high school. Um, well, I guess it would be only like 120. But it's really helpful for a lot of them. And they recognize kind of some of these basic science principles that they get introduced to through paleontology. And that's really great. Yeah, I think I mean, I think that you know, you, you've hit the nail on the head is, you know, it's it's not about creating paleontologists. And in fact, that's kind of my nightmare scenario. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I love paleontology and I'll absolutely encourage people that want to go into the field. Um, but I think the real value, a real value of paleontology, not the only value, but a value, um, is it's a, it's a pretty accessible way to see how science works and to see how museums work. You know, so if the students come out of the program, no matter how much or how little they've done with it, and at least they understand like, oh, you know, like this stuff that I read in a textbook, there's actually a scientist somewhere who dug up a fossil and worked with collections people and preparators and, you know, outreach specialists uh, to, you know, to bring that science to the public. And they can understand that, wow, I can, I'm a scientist, I can do science too. You know, we, we, we really want them to understand science and the process of science, you know, even if they don't even, you know, go into science or a science related field, you know, if they go into business or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess ideally my, you know, if I could choose any field for them to go into, it's like, you know, guys go out into business and become, you know, wildly successful billionaires and then, you know, build up our endowment here at the museum, you know, money. <laughs> <laughs> paleontologists aren't usually as capable of uh, <laughs> donating as much but I love all of our students anyhow so <laughs> that's good and then where are some of the trips that you take them we do a lot of uh, trips uh, domestically so especially Southern California out through the Barstow Formation working under permit from the U.S. Bureau of Land Management into Southern Utah and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument uh, but also up into Montana we've had projects in the Hill Creek Formation um, the Renova Formation which is a Cenozoic uh, rock layer uh, so kind of all over and we will occasionally do they're more on the tourist paleo side of things but we'll do uh, trips overseas with students or alumni and or alumni but we've been places like China Mongolia Madagascar um, that's more of uh, less about you know really doing our own science and 
you know, maybe collaborating with the research team there or seeing some of the cool fossils from those parts of the world. Awesome. Yeah, when we first heard that, I think that's when Gary and I kind of looked at each other like, oh, we wish we knew about this school when we were... <laughs> yeah, I don't think my parents could have afforded it, though. Well, no, but... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just talking a little bit about the museum, because Gabe, you gave us this excellent tour, but it'd be nice for our listeners to hear about kind of how the museum's set up. Yeah, sure. So the museum, um, that it, as it is now, is, you know, really great because when it was being rebuilt from the original format that it had with Ray Alf, we got to create it in a way that was really educational and really accessible. So what it is, is when you walk in through the front doors of the Alf Museum, you kind of start at the beginning of everything, at the beginning of the universe. And you follow that through because the museum is a giant circle and it's one big timeline. So as you go through the museum, you enter through the different periods of time and you learn about how things have changed, how things have evolved through time. You start in the Paleozoic and learn about some of the very first organisms. Then you move to our, you know, the favorite section of most guests is the dinosaur section where yeah. you see some really cool dinosaurs <laughs> like our Allosaurus that's, you know, open to the middle of the display of the museum. Some amazing fossil finds, like real fossils that are on display that were found by some of our students. And you go out towards, from there, the Cenozoic. And then we have downstairs is our Hall of Footprints. The Alf Museum has like one of the largest collection of fossil trackways in the United States. And when I say largest, I don't mean the amount. Some of our trackways are just huge, like <laughs> tons of rock downstairs. And, you know, they're amazing collections. And yeah, you've got that spider trackway, right? Yeah. Octopod Ichnus Raymondi. It's a really <laughs> cool track. Yeah, that one's great. Yeah. So it's, it's a really cool museum because, you know, like I said, it's two stories, but we pack a lot in here. <laughs> <laughs> for the amount that, for the for the size of our museum, and it's a really, I think, even if I, even though I work here, I think it's a really well done museum in the way that people can be guided guide themselves through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. It's kind of shocking if you were going through that museum to think that it was basically like a high school property. You know what I mean? Like, because I've been in a a high school that had a planetarium before and it was like the most simple planetarium I've ever seen but this museum is like really really nice it's got you know really high-end stuff and you've got lots of what people would term as real fossils you know not replicas of things and you've got that baby Louie out on display which is a really significant find and all that kind of stuff is it baby Louie it's Joe oh, it's baby Joe. baby Joe wrong <laughs> dude Louis name dead baby dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Wrong baby. <laughs> well, you knew it was a baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that one's really cool. What's cool about our exhibits too, especially in downstairs, is we incorporate not just the facts about the dinosaur or the specimens, but we talk a lot about the science that goes into finding it and describing it and even the museum side of things downstairs. So it's a really cool way for people to just learn about the entire process from fossilization to finding in the field to the research to displaying it on the museum. Mm -hmm. You can really get the whole experience in, you know, our two floors here. Yeah. And you've also got some cool technology stuff going on, like the augmented reality. Yeah. Like I said, our museum's small. We only have two floors. We don't really have the budget to keep doing renovations or additions to our exhibits to make them more accessible. Um, a lot of our guests who come to the museum are usually people who speak English as a second language. We do tours for um, differently abled people, whether they're visually impaired or hearing impaired. 
So we've been trying to find ways to make the museum more inclusive for them because a lot of times when you have museums, you know, our exhibits are very much visual based or they're like touch displays or something where, you know, you have to be able to see or hear. But we have people who come here who can't participate in that way. And like for me, my I have family who are, you know, we're from the Philippines, so they speak English as their second language. So it's hard for them to understand. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to find a way for them to be a part of the museum experience instead of having to use like a booklet or something. So what, I've, what I'm trying to do right now is incorporate augmented reality in a way that people can use their tablets or their phone and hold it up to our museum displays. And then what it, it'll either like translate the text into Spanish or Chinese. It'll start playing a video, um, an animation with subtitles. Um, it'll play an audio dictation so that people who are um, visually impaired can have a tactile experience and feel the fossil and be able to get a mental image of whatever they're feeling so they can, you know, kind of get a picture of the fossil. So really the augmented reality project is just a way to make our museum much more inclusive and accessible to everybody and really go along with what Andy was saying and make sure that, you know, the science is is kind of open to everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Augmented reality is awesome. I was, I think that's the first museum we went to where you could use your own device to do it. There were some that kind of have tablets built in, and in like a very limited way, oh, you could like point the, out like one or two things. Yeah, like the Philip Curry Museum. Yeah, which was cool too. I mean, augmented reality is always cool. But <laughs> if you can use your own device, I think people might be a little more likely to use it all over the place rather than kind of going from tablet to tablet kind of thing. Yeah, and it's the, the other advantage, you know, is, is for a museum. I mean, you know, most museums, particularly small museums, you know, we don't have the budget to update the technology every you know, two years or even necessarily every five years. So mm. if we can, um, you know, have the option where something that for most visitors who will likely have that device, you know, in their pocket already, you know, it's available. And then, of course, you know, having making sure that we have a couple, you know, devices that people can use or borrow, you know, because we do recognize not everyone has them. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you know, having having stuff, you know, more in the, you know, more out there in the cloud, I think is definitely, you know, better for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Because it's hard to buy, you know, a whole huge set of iPads every two years or whatever you'd have to do otherwise. Yeah, right. And the thing about this project, too, is it's helpful on our side of things because we don't have to build new exhibits. We just add to something that's already there and it's not physically there. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's an overlay using augmented reality and we can change it that morning. Let's say, you know, Andy publishes a new paper on Diabloceratops and we have to change something on the text. You know, we can go up and you know, I can change it on the augmented reality like that morning and it's ready to go in like five minutes and it's ready. If some new paper comes out, I can create a new video on some new exhibit in a couple of days and have that ready to go for people to keep up with all the latest information. And also it's a free program to use what I'm using. I'm using HP Reveal and it's free for users and it's great because the app is free. It's free to upload things. It's really easy to use. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. I'm trying to make sure there's a way for no museum to have an excuse now to not try to at least experiment with inclusivity <laughs> and accessible design. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, Andy, we have a few dinosaur questions, <laughs> of course. Oh. <laughs> but since you study ceratopsians, and we actually we met John Scanella a couple years back, and he mentioned yeah. he said to talk to you at some point because we were talking Uh-oh. to him about the the Torosaurus Triceratops <laughs> debate. Thanks for me now. <laughs> God set this up. <laughs> yeah, you can blame him. Before his vengeance would come. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I actually, John and I get along quite well, which is why I can joke about such things. Yeah. <laughs> I only joke about researchers I like. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, so our listeners know a little bit about that debate and how it still is. Would you say it's still hotly contested? Is that it's still kind of a big issue? I'd say so. I mean, the Museum of the Rockies still has a display where it's like, these are the growth stages of Triceratops. And the last one is a skull that most people would consider a Taurosaurus. Most people, that's the keyword. Yeah, most <laughs> people. Uh, yeah, uh, no, I mean, I, th- I think I would say it's disputed still, or at least, at least there's not a complete consensus on it. I would, it's not really disputed though in that like there there just hasn't been a lot of new stuff done on it lately. Like I think basically everything everyone that's going to say something on it, you know, has said their piece. You know, now it's just kind of, you know, marking time waiting for that one fossil that's going to settle it, mm-hmm. you know, definitively one way or the other. You know, that really being a juvenile torosaurus that everyone agrees is a juvenile torosaurus or good histology on limb bones for associated skulls with Triceratops torosaurus, etc. Yeah, because basically the idea is either Taurosaurus is just an old Triceratops or mm-hmm. it's not. And there are juvenile Taurosaurus and there are juvenile Triceratops as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think basically, you know, things I've I've said, you know, several years ago or, you know, many years ago now, like five years ago in some cases, I think there are things that are very likely juvenile or at least young Taurosaurus um, and some of the transformations that would have had to have happened in the skull to make a Triceratops grow up into a Taurosaurus. Um, you know, I think they're just so outside the norm of what we know about horned dinosaur growth um, that it just doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't really, you know, fit in the end. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, I think where some people, um, or some at least people that are more on like the casual side of things say, well, oh, you know, he disputes. Um, you know, Taurosaurus being the same thing as Triceratops, that must mean like, you know, that every, you know, he disputes all this stuff about dinosaur growth and ontogeny. And, you know, that's not really the case either. You know, I think it's a, it's, it's really a case of like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, things obviously changed as they grew. We know that Triceratops changed a lot from when it was little, you know, the, the small skull that they have up at Berkeley to, you know, what we think of as classic Triceratops. Um, I just think, you know, the weight of the evidence doesn't really fit you know, with Taurosaurus being kind of like the, the ultimate end old Triceratops. Yeah. Can you remind me, is it that Triceratops frill has no holes and then the Taurosaurus has holes? Yep, that's part of it. And the other thing, and, the, you know, one of the pieces of evidence that I think is most compelling for, you know, them being separate and a big difference if you're a Triceratops or Taurosaurus nerd <laughs> is the number of little like uh, spiky bone things to use technical terminology um, <laughs> on the edge of the frill. Uh, they're called epiparietals or episquamosals or epiossifications, meaning they're, they're the bones that sit on the edge of the frill. You know, it, it seems to be the case for horned dinosaurs in general, and this seems to be the case for things that people agree are triceratops, is they don't change the number of those little sticky-ony things uh, on the edge of the frill as they grow up. So if you look at the, you know, for instance, that tiny little Berkeley skull, uh, the skull at UC Berkeley that, you know, you can basically hold in one hand, Mm -hmm. you know, it has as many little bumpy things or places for little bumpy things on the edge of its frill, as does a skull that's like, you know, 10 times its size or five times its size. 
And that's what we see in other horned dinosaurs too, things like Centrosaurus. The number of spiky things on the edge of a frill of a, of a small Centrosaurus are the same as what we see in something that's at full size. Horosaurus, mm-hmm. though, has like roughly twice the number of little spiky things on its frill. Um, and so what that would suggest was that if, well, if Taurosaurus is Triceratops, then Triceratops would start out as a tiny animal, grow up to something with a skull six or seven feet long, and keep the same number of little spiky things on the edge of its frill all through that. But then, like for the last two feet of skull growth, it's all of a sudden just going to add a whole bunch of extra bones on the edge of its frill. And grow holes. And grow holes. I mean, you know, I could, I could see like, you know, the growing holes thing might is something that seems plausible. But, you know, the, the addition of all those little extra bones on the frill just doesn't fit with what other horned dinosaurs do. doesn't mean it's not impossible. You know, it doesn't mean it's impossible, um, but it's just a little inconsistent with what we know otherwise. Yep. Yeah. So since you've done a lot of research on ceratopsians and you've named, like I know you, you, you described Aquilops, which is that really cute little dinosaur and uh, have all these great papers out. What's the most like, I don't know, exciting thing to you that you've discovered in, in your research? Baby Joe, maybe. Was that, did you discover uh, baby Joe? I was there when it was found. I actually told the student who found it to, it wasn't worth looking at. Um, <laughs> that's like, you know, a, a little, uh, a little embarrassing. We all have those moments. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when we found that, I was out prospecting with one of our uh, high school students, and he saw these, you know, these bone, this bone sticking out under a rock. And usually, when you're out looking for dinosaurs, uh, most of what you find isn't necessarily worth excavating or worth collecting. It might be bone scraps or things like that. You know, little non-diagnostic pieces of bones doesn't mean they they have no scientific importance, um, but in terms of a museum, you know, you can't necessarily for many purposes pick up every little scrap of bone on the ground because if you have like a thousand or a million little pieces of unidentifiable dinosaur bone you know you're going to run out of space and time and money to really take care of it mm-hmm. so when we you know when he first found this piece of bone it was it looked like you know it was kind of covered in rock and i looked up at it and i was like oh that just looks like a little piece of rib fragment or something like that which is always like the default identification for that <laughs> and then as we you know got looking at the site a little more, you know, it turned out it was, well, oh, I guess it actually is a nearly complete dinosaur skeleton. Oops. <laughs> yeah, so that happened. So, that, I mean, that was a cool, that was a really cool find. Probably my, like, the thing that I've personally found, like, the fossil that I that I thought was, you know, that was, that was kind of cool was finding the brain case that became the holotype uh, for a sauropod dinosaur called Vihini, mm. uh, which is uh, from Madagascar. Um, when I was a grad student, I did a number of field seasons over there with Stony Brook University and the University of Antananarivo. Mm-hmm. And I was walking along one day. We were sort of revisiting these old sites where people had found fossils before. And as I'm walking along, I see this little like knob of bone sticking up out of the ground, kind of on its own little pedestal. <laughs> and I look down at it. I'm like, oh, that kind of looks like a brain case of something. You know, and I, I'm not a brain caseologist, so I didn't know exactly what kind of brain case it was. But brain cases are cool because they're often, you know, you can, they're very diagnostic to the kind of animal. And I thought, oh, it looks like some sort of archosaur. It's not a theropod. Maybe it's a crocodilian or maybe it's a sauropod. You know, so we collected it. We jacked it up very carefully. Um, and then a year or two or three later, 
in the prep lab turned out that's like, oh, wow, this is the brain case for this species of sauropod that we haven't had sufficient you know, stuff to name previously, and it's going to be the, the type specimen, or this is the specimen that we're going to hang that name on. Nice. Uh, so that was kind of cool, because it's like, you know, I, I actually, I technically discovered a new species of dinosaur, and that's like, you know, that's a childhood <laughs> dream right there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, find, finding the holotype for something is really kind of cool, and that's, you know, that's an achievement unlocked in that case. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and you got there early too. If you're still a grad student at the time, yeah, yeah, way back in the day. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fun. That's that's I, I think that's one of the really fun things, but also one of the real privileges is being able to do that. You know, because I, I recognize there's paleontologists that might spend their whole career and never you know get that experience. So mm-hmm. for, I'm pretty grateful for that. Yeah. So kind of going into the SciComm sort of stuff, Andy, you're the PLOS Paleo Community Editor. Can you? Tell us a little bit about the the paleo community, and then I guess what it means to be an editor. Yeah, so I'm I'm one of uh, three editors with uh, John Tennant and uh, Sarah Gibson. So we all uh, manage that. So basically, the paleo community is first and foremost a uh, website. So on at, hosted at Plus Blogs, and the intention with that is really to advocate for and highlight open science and open access science within paleontology. Uh, So one of the things, you know, for for anyone who's ever visited the website, you know, we have a weekly Fossil Friday post. And that's something that, you know, that's really uh, Sarah Gibson's, you know, brainchild and, and, you know, something that she's she's really the main person behind that, where we uh, sum up all the open access articles in paleontology that were published that week and point out towards you know, where maybe there's cool news articles or blog posts or events related to paleontology. So that's part of what we do. Part of what we do also is, is you know, doing blog posts on events. Uh, we have our Twitter feed and stuff like that to just kind of make a, a location and a resource for paleontologists or those who are interested in paleontology to uh, learn more about the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing that might kind of my favorite annual event is we do our, you know, our top 10 uh, open access uh, species of the year for paleontology. So oh, yeah. it started off, I think, originally just as like vertebrate fossils and stuff. And now it's sort of ballooned into, you know, like looking across paleontology in general. We had um, this year, it was exciting. It wasn't just a dinosaur um, in the in number one slot. It was a fish, mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of cool. A prehistoric trumpet fish. It's kind of cool. <laughs> It was cool. It was a really great illustration. <laughs> in the in the top five slots, we had the oldest fossil mushroom. Uh, you know, so it's, you know, and then then there was a lot of dinosaurs too. But it's like it's kind of cool to see that you know it's it's uh, you know it's not just dinosaurs that are getting you know all this press um, or all this attention or all this uh, devotion for you know making their their research more accessible. But there's other you know facets of paleontology that are out there. And I, and I think it's a good opportunity to remind folks, you know, that paleontology is more than dinosaurs. I love dinosaurs. You know, I'm not right now talking on a podcast with the uh, word <laughs> dino in the title. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's you know, fossils are just cool in general. And so, you know, one of the things that I think we, we try and promote and, and you often succeed uh, with the PLOS paleo community is, you know, the idea of, you know, all the cool fossils that are out there. And then, you know, it's, you know, further thinking about it, you know, the fact that we want to make these fossils as accessible to everyone, um, whether that's in the publication format or the um, the data availability and all that. So that's what PLOS Paleo is all about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that list. <laughs> and open access that's, in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We look forward to it. Cool. <laughs> and Gabe, I know you you have a ton of projects because you're this amazing science communicator. And actually, 
I didn't even, I think it, we didn't know for a while that you were a collections manager at the Alpha okay. Museum because we just knew you from all your other projects. <laughs> no, I guess that's cool though. <laughs> so let's see, where to start? You're the co-founder of Cosplay for Science. Yeah. <laughs> let's start there. <laughs> sure. Cosplay for Science. That was, that's a, that's been a fun experiment. I guess that started here at the Alpha Museum because last year we had our very first Making Monsters event. Um, that's our discovery day where we talk about how paleontology can influence things in pop culture, like video games and like TV shows and stuff. And, you know, I'm a huge nerd. You know, I've played Pokemon since I was 10 and I've known all, all the fossil Pokemon since then. And, you know, I wanted to do something fun with the kids. And so what I did is I took all the fossils out that had an equivalent form in the Pokemon world. And I dressed up as Professor Oak <laughs> and I did the whole voice for all the kids when they came up and I'd be like, hello, young trainer, you want to learn about fossil Pokemon? <laughs> and so they came and I just saw how much fun they had and how engaged they got. We're like, oh my God, Professor Oak is talking to us about Pokemon paleontology. And I had a blast because, you know, I turned to a little kid and to talk with all these people who just loved it. And it was really fun. And that kind of started things where I was like, oh, this could be something interesting to kind of do where you combine people's nerdiness and love of pop culture with science. And then it really became into being this year when we partnered with the Western Science Center, particularly Brittany Stoneberg, their uh, marketing person there. Um, she's a giant nerd. We're very good friends. And we were <laughs> we, we partnered together to get a booth at this uh, small Comic-Con called NerdBotCon here in Pasadena. And we decided that if we're going to do it, we're going to be at a con. We're both nerdy. We love cosplay to begin with. Let's dress up, right? So mm -hmm. for the Comic-Con, we dressed up as all the characters from Jurassic Park. I was Dr. <laughs> Grant. Um, Brittany was Dr. Sattler. We had every character you could imagine with all the dinosaurs and fossils and just to get people interested. And people walked up and like, oh, my God, you guys are from Jurassic Park. And like, yeah, we have real fossils, too. And you see their jaws <laughs> hit the floor. It was just so much fun. And just seeing how how engaged people got and how interested they got in not just learning about this Jurassic Park, but the science behind it all really got things going. And so it became official after that. Um, our friend Michelle Barboza from University of Florida and also the uh, founder of the Femmes of STEM podcast mm -hmm. joined us because she's a giant nerd, too. And then um, another one of our friends, my best friend, Isaac Magallanes, who is also at University of Florida and studies um, marine mammals and education there joined us because he's a nerd. So we all we're just a bunch of nerds who uh, found a reason to cosplay, quote, professionally, while also <laughs> talking about paleontology. And it's been really fun. We've gotten a lot of really cool people following us on Instagram and on Twitter and people wanting to do cosplays with us. We've had a few other scientists send us their cosplays that they've done and talk about the science behind that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is their first year doing this kind of project, and we're hoping it gets bigger and a really cool way to make science more approachable, accessible, and relatable. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we have another con coming up in May. That's Comic-Con Revolution Ontario. And we're doing a panel actually about the evolution of dinosaurs through pop culture. Um, we're talking about how they've changed in cinema and TV and like video games. Andy will actually be a panelist on that with a bunch of other paleontologists from the area. Nice. We're going to be at uh, WonderCon. So we have a lot of really cool things planned for cosplay for science. Um, so yeah, if you want to follow along, you can check us out on Instagram, shameless plug. Yeah, go for <laughs> it. At Cosplay for Science? Yeah, Cosplay for Science. And we're on Instagram and Twitter. 
<laughs> really, what it, what it is is Gabe wanted to have a situation where he can be the only paleontologist in the world who's paid to carry around a lightsaber. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's like the best scam ever. <laughs> I get paid to do it, and it's great. <laughs> Brittany and I are planning to do a uh, actually a uh, geology of Star Wars video one day where we're dressed up as Padawans from the Jedi archives <laughs> and we're tasked with collecting geological samples from Tatooine to talk to uh, record previous fluvial systems. And so we're going to talk about geological process and sedimentary structures while we're out in Mojave Desert, <laughs> pretending we're on Tatooine. And <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Plus it makes it in a way more accessible for kids, especially if they're fans yeah. of Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Not They used it. Didn't they use a dinosaur like skeleton in a fake in like the Tatooine set in Africa? Wasn't that one of your dinosaur things? It was like a sauropod or something. Yeah. Yeah. And there have been a number of the uh, the you know the different ship designs that are at least at least one I know of that were based on dinosaur vertebrae and stuff like that. Yeah. Ship designs. Yeah, it's the Imperial cruiser. What? Oh, cool. I had no idea. Yes, one with the wings that fold up like that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool, like, monsters in the background. They're all based off of real dinosaurs. Terrell Whitlatch, who's the um, concept artist for the episode one, mm-hmm. she did this amazing book called The Wildlife of Star Wars, where you, she, she drew a natural history book um, from the perspective of being in the world of Star Wars. And if you look at a lot of the animals she drew... She said she was influenced by paleontology and real animals and really shaped them to fit the world. And so that's it's really cool to have that and use it as a starting point to talk about not just paleontology, but natural history, science, biology, anything you can think of. And that's what cosplay for science is. Mm-hmm. It's not just paleontology. It's just trying to get people interested in science and see science and where they normally wouldn't and hopefully get them to think about science more often. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. And like Andy said, I got to use a lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's pretty fun. <laughs> and you've also got the Paleontology Education Facebook group, which last I checked, you've, you've got over a thousand members. Yeah, that kind of, that was, that blew up fast. And that is actually the brainchild of Tara Lapore. She is another paleontologist here at the ALF Museum and the Web Schools. She teaches environmental science here. Um, and she is, you know, a longtime paleontology educator and science communicator. And she wanted to create something where paleontologists, educators, science communicators, and people just interested in general could come together as a community to share ideas, get feedback, talk about fun new ways to talk about, to educate paleontology. And Tara, Ashley Hall, and then Ashley Moorhart had a, actually a paleontology education workshop at SVP last year that came about from the website. So we're hoping to do a lot more with that, you know, maybe podcast or YouTube video tutorials in the future. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. something that's really cool and a really cool community of people that's becoming more prominent within the paleontology community itself. Yeah, that's great. So uh, this is a, l- a little bit different, but I-, I saw pictures on your Instagrams recently for Nerd Night LA. Oh, yes. That was Andy. Yeah, that was me. Instagram, <laughs> I was on it. Yeah, that was my picture. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you talk about, Andy? 
Oh, so so I talked. Uh, the the title of my talk was "The Dinosaur in My Beer," and uh, the the idea with this, and this is is something I've been pursuing in a couple of different venues, is looking at the connections between beer. And I'm I'm someone who's a home brewer. I make my own beer. I enjoy so it. good. <laughs> I enjoy, you know, I, I enjoy drinking beer responsibly, but uh, I also really, really, really enjoy finding the connections between the world of natural history and of paleontology and of science in general with beer. Uh, so, you know, one of the, and this is an area that's really unexplored um, in the world of beer and beer research and beer writing. You know, typically if you, you know, someone talks about the history of beer, they start somewhere back in the Middle East when, you know, some people figured out a way to ferment some grains. And then they talk about, well, in the Middle Ages, you add hops to beer. And then, you know, it culminates in the the American craft brewer today. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's, 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 I guess that's part of the story, but it leaves out, you know, the other 4.6 billion years of, of history. <laughs> you know, so I, I really like to think about, and I like to get other people thinking about, you know, that bigger story behind, not just beer, but between behind anything in our lives. You know, so I'll, at the talk, I, I specifically, for purposes of time, just looked at the, the history of the hop plant, which is what gives beer its bitterness and some flavor and aroma mm-hmm. uh, characteristics, uh, which we can, you know, we have hop plants that might be as old as the time of triceratops but you know other things that i've explored with that have been you know things like you know the way that uh the the development of the pilsner beer style at least indirectly was related to the discovery of archaeopteryx you know there's (laughs) there's all sorts of uh of connections you can find the the connection just to you know for the short version of that is that uh, archaeopteryx and many of the Archaeopteryx fossils and a lot of pterosaur fossils we know uh, were discovered basically as an industrial byproduct. The Solnhofen limestone, where they come from, some of those uh, layers of the limestone are used in uh, were used in lithography, which is basically taking the stones and using them as a, a type of printing plate for you know art prints or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The the rock of the Solnhofen limestone has all also been used as a building material, like roofing tiles, um, as a sculpting medium. But then for the the purposes of beer, um, Solnhofen limestone traditionally turned out to be really good for making uh, the floors of malting houses. Hmm. So that basically the buildings where they're they're sprouting the barley or other grains and, and germinating them and then and then heating them up to uh, get them prepared for brewing of beer. So you basically back in the 19th century and the 18th uh, 18th century you have um, these quarries that are you know operating at top capacity not just for printing plates and stuff like that but also to make these malt house uh, floors. <laughs> and as you're doing that you're getting all this you know it's basically bycatch you know all these fossils that turn up. Uh, so I so I like to think that. Um, you know, the, that Archaeopteryx, or at least some of the Archaeopteryx fossils, were probably at least indirectly, uh, or maybe even directly in some cases, a result of, uh, you know, these construction of those malt houses. Uh, <laughs> you know, those nice uh, those nice Solnhofen uh, limestone-floored malt houses, uh, some of them are still in use wow. in Europe. Um, and I've actually made a beer uh, that used barley that was malted on Solnhofen limestone. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so this is like, you know, this is like down the geekiest corner of the geekiest rabbit hole you know <laughs> but you know I, I, one of the things that i just love is finding these kinds of connections and you know thinking about you know the fact that you know what no matter what it is you know whether whether it's beer whether it's food whether it's you know technology there's connections with everything and if you really know where to look um the history of everything is much deeper than just the last couple thousand years of recorded human history mm-hmm. the history goes back you know to the formation of our planet and you know 
before that even. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Leave it to a paleontologist to look into the millions of years of history rather than just like a couple hundred. Yeah. <laughs> the more you know. Yeah. <laughs> so for our listeners who might want to learn about you, both of you and, and your work, where is the best place to find out more and if they wanted to get involved in any of your projects? So the uh, for our museum, elfmuseum.org is our official museum website. Uh, there's at Elf Museum as our Twitter feed. There's at Elf Paleo as mm-hmm. our Instagram. Instagram. There's the Facebook page and all that. Uh, so that's you know kind of the best place to find out just about what we're uh, doing as a museum. For my personal stuff, there's the Plus Paleo website. Uh, if you just search Plus Paleo Community, you'll find that. For my beer and brewing and beer communication activities, it's Andy Brews, A-N-D-Y-B-R-E-W-S dot com. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and then, of course, my, my personal Twitter, at uh, Andy Farkey, um, is the other place where I, I spew forth science communication and <laughs> science and beer and all that kind of stuff. And you'll just see me retweeting it pretty fast. <laughs> Yeah, you can find me personal. Um, I'm at Paleo Paradox on Twitter and Instagram. I'm usually there posting at least every hour. For <laughs> Cosplay for Science, again, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Paleontology Education, you can find that on um, Facebook. It's a Facebook group. Just really quick, if you want to join, make sure you fill out the questions because there's a lot of people try to join. Don't fill out the questions and we won't let them in. <laughs> so yeah, make sure you fill those out. and. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very much, we're all, all of us at the museum are pretty active on social media. So if you find one of us, you'll find everything else pretty fast. <laughs> and I, I would also encourage, you know, for those who are in the Los Angeles area or happen to be going through the Los Angeles area to stop by the museum, you know, either on our, on our regular hours, uh, which are listed on our various websites, um, or for one of the, uh, one of our discovery days at the museum where we have uh, special events, the Making Monsters event we have our uh, our next one is the women of paleontology event that's on uh february 10th or uh, yeah february 10th it's a saturday and we're having all a lot of our local paleontologists our friends and guests come to the museum who are women to come and speak about their research their experiences in the field and really do more like i said for you know representation and inclusivity going to be really cool we have some really great guests coming to talk about some really cool research yeah another where area where you know the los angeles community is just a phenomenal place to be a paleontologist there's so many great people it's true that's great yeah we were i was surprised well like happily surprised when we were visiting and then we heard about all these events that seem to be happening yeah. all the time <laughs> yeah it's a nice place to be a paleontologist it is <laughs> i'm very i'm very lucky that i was born and raised here and get a chance to stay here as a paleontologist. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been great chatting with you both. Thank yeah. you. Our pleasure. Thanks so much, Andy and Gabe. We really enjoyed talking to you. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Gojirasaurus, which was a request from TRES4 via YouTube. So thanks. It was a coelophysoid that lived in the Triassic in what is now New Mexico, and its name means Godzilla lizard. It was named after Gojira, which is the Japanese name for Godzilla. And Gojira is a combination of the Japanese words for gorilla, gorira, and whale, kujira. So it's a portmanteau. Yep. And there is also a Godzillasaurus in the Heitsei era of Godzilla films, and that's a political period of Japan. 
and Godzillasaurus is fictional. So it's just a character in the Godzilla films. Yes. The type species of Gojirasaurus is Gojirasaurus quayi, and quayi refers to Quay County, New Mexico, where the holotype was found. And it was found in the Cooper Canyon Formation in 1981, and it was described in 1997 by Kenneth Carpenter. Gojirasaurus may be a dubious genus, though. Fossils of the first specimen found include a serrated tooth, some ribs, vertebrae, chevron, right pubis, left tibia, and metatarsal. However, in 2007, Nesbitt and others found that the vertebrae were actually of Shuvasaurus, and the pubis and tibia came from another coelophysoid. It was too large to be coelophysis, so it was a, some other coelophysoid. And that's what made Gojirosaurus a dubious genus. On the other hand, Nesbitt and others also said that the tibia was what distinguished Gojirosaurus as its own genus because that showed that Gojirosaurus was more robust than coelophysis. Hmm. In 2012, Mortimer said that the more robust tibia may just be size-related, though, and not actually a distinguishing feature. There was another specimen referred to Gojirosaurus in 1994, but it was only a pubis. Adrian Hunt described the pubis in an unpublished thesis and named it Revultoraptor leucosi, but it's now considered to be a nomum nudum. As a coelophysoid, Gojirosaurus was bipedal, terrestrial, and carnivorous, and it was one of the largest carnivores from the Triassic. It was about 18 feet or five and a half meters long and estimated to weigh 330 to 440 pounds or 150 to 200 kilograms. Kenneth Carpenter thought that the holotype was of a juvenile, so maybe it grew bigger. The specimen is now in the University of Colorado Museum in Boulder, Colorado in their collections. And our fun fact of the day is that radar is an acronym for radio detection and ranging, whereas LIDAR is just a portmanteau of light and radar. And portmanteaus, like Godzilla or Gojira, <laughs> are when you take basically the front half of one word and the back half of another word and you smash them together, like Brangelina, <laughs> the couple. <laughs> That's the example you go for. <laughs> Most people know about that one, right? That was like the first celebrity couple to have that like mashed together name. Oh, maybe. I think it was. So, yeah, it's interesting because LIDAR is a portmanteau of an acronym. And sometimes people make a backronym, which is an acronym created after the fact, and they make LIDAR light detection and ranging, but that's not actually what it stands for. When we were talking earlier about LIDAR, the Arkansas track site that they measured using LIDAR used it for a very good reason. It had recently rained, which means that all of the footprints were full of water. So you couldn't do photogrammetry because obviously if you're taking pictures of it, you're just taking pictures of puddles <laughs> and you won't see all the way to the bottom. And you also can't do radar. No one really uses radar. But I don't think structured light would work either because it reflects off the surface of the water. But using LIDAR and their green laser light, it went through the water and measured down to the bottom of the footprints, even when they were full of water from the rain. So it worked like magic. All right. Yeah, good time to use LIDAR. <laughs> when you need magic yes <laughs> like seeing through water <laughs> probably muddy gross water and on that note that wraps up this episode of i know dino thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes you can also join our growing community on patreon at patreon.com slash i know dino thanks again and until next time 
Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at I Know Dino.